0: Check the mic and make sure it sound right,
1: boys. Episode two is upon your earlobes. Thanks for sharing, and welcome one and all to this latest edition of A Toast to the A-Town, presented by the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm Andre Aldridge, and I certainly appreciate all that are listening, especially if you joined us for the debut episode with the good doctor, Julia Serving. Hit that subscribe button as we continue to talk Hawks past and present. Uh, My hope is to do an even better job than I did before, maybe even with a little less reverb than last time. We will see. June 3rd, 1987. On that Wednesday, a little movie called The Untouchables was released. One of my favorite Robert De Niro scenes happened then, when as Al Capone, he gives a speech on teamwork. Now, sure, it was a movie and yes, his theme was baseball. Kind of have to do that when the point of the story is a Louisville slugger upside the head. But I'm all in on being part of a team. That's every sport. That's life. Our guest that's going to join us a little later in the show has attained all kinds of accolades. But along with that, his sacrifice has been all about team. A man becomes preeminent. He's expected to have enthusiasms. Enthusiasms. (laughs) Enthusiasms. Hey, heading into this work week, our Atlanta Hawks have posted a 10-9 record, which had them on top of the Southeast Division. Now, Monday night loss to the Lakers, the tough home games against the struggling Mavericks, Utah and Toronto, will tell us an awful lot about this ball club. No surprises that wins have returned, along with Trey Young's big scoring nights, and return to form. Now, what should get lost in the sauce, which is easy to do when he's scoring 38 points, then 43 points, then 38 points, and uh, 41 points a couple of games after that, is the teamwork of the non-headliners. While Trey did his thing, and Clint Capella was grabbing 18 rebounds against the Clippers last week, we understand that no NBA game is ever over in the fourth quarter. But during that contest, Kevin Herter, who hadn't scored any points through three quarters was able to pick up 13 fourth quarter points against that LA squad. So when you have players who have a chance to say, you know what, tonight's not my night. It's great to watch a player not buy into that, not to stop competing, and just think it's 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 all right. Trey got us got us where we are tonight, right? Well, Kevin Herter's a gamer. He's shown that many times before. And to see him turn it around in that game was absolutely crucial for the Hawks to register that 108-99 win over the Clippers. Three nights later, it was Rajon Rondo with very important minutes during the win in Washington. Again, Trey Young, 41 points, sensational. But it was the veteran Rondo standing up to Russell Westbrook, up close and personal. Box score says Rondo only had eight points and four assists. But I've said before, there is no toughness column in the box score. You know the energy Russ brings every night. He's not just trying to beat you, he's trying to crush you. He's Will Ferrell trying to bury his stepbrother. And he's not using ninja focus to slow his heart rate down, not even a little bit. You know, a couple of years ago in OKC, the Thunder beat our side in a game that was never even close after the first quarter. Russ finished with 23 points, uh, 10 assists, and nine rebounds. And that's also with Dennis with 18 points and eight assists against us coming off the bench. Now the thing I remember more than that was Russell scoring a three in front of our bench and then coming back down and pretty much standing on our bench and calling every person in an Atlanta uniform out of their names loudly. And no one did anything because there was no one there to do anything. And my feeling was, man, we're already five and 17. You got to curse us out and say we aren't children of God too. But you know, (laughs) that's what happened. So again, Back to last week in Washington, it was Rondo reminding Russ that, hey, I'm not sure how you talked to these guys before, but you're not going to just be speaking to us any kind of way. We're not about to get punked, and we're whooping your team's ass tonight. Now, for me, man, that's priceless. That's the veteran teammate that I need. And for that, that's why I'm handing out last week's awards. Yeah, yeah. I'm giving Rajon Rondo two Ivan Johnsons for the work that I watched him put in last week. Now, moving on, I said I was going to talk food and drink on this podcast, and and that's definitely going to happen. But for this segment, this episode, I'm going to give some extra time to our special guest in a few minutes. He'll have some interesting thoughts on dealing with verbal players because he has history with the grand poobah of all shit talkers, and that's any sport, because he had to try and stand up to Gary Payton. Now, Gary is a friend, but I really wouldn't wish that on anybody. As for food, though. Hopefully, more vaccines during this pandemic will get us all closer to getting reacquainted with an industry that's been so devastated over the past year. Here's a quick trip, though. A quick tip, though, even if you're eating in your car or doing takeout and not comfortable sitting in restaurants, plus it's the most, most economical tip I could give you. Uh, go find some flavor here in Atlanta on Buford Highway. Now, it's the four-lane stretch that goes from the tip of Brookhaven all the way to Duluth. And if you're a resident, you already know that. The food of nearly two dozen countries are represented. But for someone like me, every day is Taco Tuesday on Buford Highway. So explore, tip your waitress, even if it's a to-go order. You know, the essential workers uh, that feed you, they weren't getting rich before the pandemic. And if they're fortunate enough to still be working, they damn sure ain't getting rich now. So if you're a resident, fine. You already know. If you're visiting our fine city, make Beaufort Highway a stop and be sure to do what you can and stay safe. A couple of my go-tos for Mexican food, tacos uh, or tortas. uh, Oh, tortas. Yes, sir. Um, El El Pastor Cita. El pastorcita. Yeah. El Pastor Cita. uh, That's tacos. Really good stuff. And tortas. Or El Patro. And El Patro is tortas and, and margaritas. All good. All right. I wet your appetite. So let's get to the really good stuff and our special guest. All right. Now, before I bring on my first guest here for this episode and uh, I'm very excited to have him here, I want to say just a couple of things about him. OK, um, I want to tell you that he's played in the NBA for 20 years. And I say he has played in the NBA for 20 years because if a GM were to pick up the telephone right now and call him today, he'd be ready to go to work and he'd be ready to do whatever necessary for him, okay? 20 years of playing in the NBA, he's played on nine different teams. He's played for 20 different head coaches and uh, also involved in that, obviously he was a member of the Atlanta Hawks. And during that season, it was the first time he became the NBA's sixth man of the year. And he's done that three times during the course of his career. So uh, he really needs no introduction, but I'm going to bring him in now. Uh, right now, I say hello and thanks for joining us. Jamal Crawford, man, thanks for joining us here on A Toast to the A-Town.
0: Andre, I'm excited to be here, excited to talk to you, uh, excited to get a chance to get uh, in front of our, our listeners, obviously. So let's get started.
1: All right. So let me, let, let I'm not going to take you in the way, way back machine at first, but just okay. take you back to your Hawks adventure. And uh, before you traded to the Hawks, you spent 54 games with the Golden State Warriors. You dropped a 50 spot in December of that season, 08-09, on the Charlotte Bobcats at the time. And uh, you also played for the Knicks that season. So what were your thoughts, Jamal, on being traded from Golden State and and knowing you were probably going to be moving on from there and coming down here to the A? Well, I was
0: excited about the team, first off, because uh, from afar, if you look, they had uh Josh Smith and Joe mm-hmm. Johnson and Mike Bibby and Marvin Williams and Al Horford and Zaza and they had a great core and they just went to the playoffs, you know. Mm-hmm. So that would be a chance for the first time for me to get a chance to participate in the playoffs, and I was excited about that. Obviously, their starting unit was intact, and I remember talking to Woody and Rick Sund, and they were like, "You know what? What about being the third guard? You know, being that sixth man?" It sounded good, and I, I was at a point in my career I was like. It doesn't matter. You know, I just want to win. Wow. I want to be known as a good player on bad teams. Uh, so for me, I said, I'll come off the bench. And it was still a little weird at first. I mean, the first game <laughs> I took two shots and I was like, man, people are looking at me different and this is weird. You know, and that was just my own mind playing tricks on me. Uh, settled in, you know, Joe Johnson said, we need you. We need mm-hmm. you to score. Woody called me in his office and said, hey, you know at least the league is scoring off the bench. We need you wow. to do that. And it was a magical year, uh, you know, Averaged 18 points a game, Mm -hmm. uh, second leading scorer. We won 53 games, I believe, and you know, one of the top three or four seasons in the playoffs. And it was just a fun year, and that that changed the course of my career. So it was really exciting for me.
1: Now, Jamal, you—I mean, everything about you, we saw it every day uh, of your career. We saw it as you matured, and we saw it every single time you 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 went to work. So that goes without saying. But still. Coming to Atlanta, you're entering your tenth year in the NBA. Yes. you were the second leading scorer on the Golden Skate team behind Captain Jack on that squad. You had started all fifty-four games for them, and you had started all eleven games for the New York Knicks this, during that same season. So, I mean, off the top, how do you accept the fact that, hey, man, you're not going to be
0: starting? Yeah, it's 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 definitely something you can't pull off if you don't have humility, because. Uh-huh. You know- I've never come off the bench consistently in my life, not from, you know, as an adolescent to playing eight, nine year olds, to high school, to college, none of that. So you had to really check that. But what I did to prepare for that come into the season, uh, playing pickup, you know, you know, the best players really play the first games. I would wait. I would wait and play the second or third game just to try to trick my mind like, OK, the game's going to be going on. You're not going to be out there when it starts. So let's start getting used to that. And it worked for a while, and you know, mm-hmm. I think that was kind of the foundation for me making that, that adjustment mentally and just emotionally.
1: No, you talk about uh, being ready for all of that and stuff and coming to a good team, but still, um, you're a very proud 206 boy, and uh, yeah, there's uh, no doubt about that. Uh, yeah. Rick's son, the Hawks GM at that time, a lot of history in Seattle. Did that play into the, the, the deal at all?
0: Well, actually, I got traded. And so mm-hmm. when I got traded, Rick actually came over to my house. Wow. And we talked and, and mm-hmm. you know, we ate dinner and he just kind of broke it down to me like, hey, would you have a problem with this? You know, mm-hmm. I think we'll have a chance to really make some noise in the East and, and hopefully make the conference finals and a championship. But it's going to take you doing your part off the bench. And if you're OK with it, you know, we feel good about it. And so we had that talk and it went mm-hmm. well. And, you know, I, I got to be honest, even when he left, I was like, man, come off the bench, like, <laughs> Right. You know, I just never have consistently. But I said, you know what? You do not want to be known as a good player on bad teams. And you're at the point in your career where you, you want to do whatever it takes to to get to a playoff contender. So that's what it was.
1: Making that adjustment in, in the NBA, maturing in the NBA, and and, and really knowing you belong. So sure, you you went to a big school at Michigan, um, but yeah. you're going to the Bulls. You're going to to, to, to to Michael's house. So when you go from your rookie yeah. year to second and third, and you start, start getting buckets, how was that adjustment for you? I mean, w- at what point did you know that you belong, or, or did you always have that confidence?
0: I had that confidence, but if you don't actually do it, it doesn't matter. Right. So it's like right. if you play middle school, then you go to high school. It's almost like you need to prove yourself all over again. You can be the man in high school, go to college in the same steps. You got to prove yourself all over again. Okay. So I had a you know, a good college career as well. It was short, but good college career. So I was like, you know what? I'm ready for the NBA. And when I got there, I wasn't ready. I wasn't strong enough mm-hmm. uh, mentally. I wasn't strong enough physically. And as I continued to develop after that first summer, Uh, After the first year that next summer, I spent a lot of time with Michael Jordan, actually training with him and working out with him. And that gave me the confidence. When you have the greatest player ever saying, hey, you got some game,
1: Mm -hmm. continue
0: to work on this, continue to never lose your confidence and give me all these tools. That's when my game took off. So I came back that next year. I played half a year because I had ACL injury. Right. And that from that point on is when things really opened up. And I was like, I was with the best ever, you know, so I'm not really worried (laughs) anymore. He said I can do it. Right, so they get a whole different fuel and different confidence, and then things just kind of took off from the year, you know, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year.
1: You're there for several years, but still as a young player, Jamal, you end up moving to New York. Yes, and I, I gotta say, for me, as in, you know, I'm native Southern Californian, but. My years I spent in New York, the fact that I could walk to the garden, even though the team wasn't that great uh, for a basketball guy. It's just you can't describe it. Right. And and you're a little jealous of the New Yorkers that have that for themselves. So for you, being the hoop head that you are, and even though you're Michael Jordan, Chicago and all of that, uh, what was it like for you to go to New York and what was it like to automatically start getting buckets there?
0: Nothing like playing in the garden, you know, Mm -hmm. and and I played on the playgrounds. I played at Record Park before I got there uh, playing in the garden. It was like, you're on stage performing, you know, every single night and having Isaiah Thomas, one of my favorite players ever bring me there and and playing Mm -hmm. with Stefan Marbury and, and Penny Hardaway and all these guys, it was just like a blessing, right? And I got a chance to learn from Allen Houston and pick Isaiah's brain and and play for Lenny Wilkins and Larry Brown and all these great coaches. So Mm -hmm. every single night was a performance. That's how I looked at it. It's like you're on stage performing. I remember one night, uh, I actually didn't play this game and I had a wrist injury or something. I'm sitting across the court, and Samuel L. Jackson's across the court. And he's like, you know, he sees me in a suit. He's like, you're not playing tonight? I'm like, nah, my wrist. I'm showing my hand, like, my wrist. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like, oh, I was going to watch you play. You know, so <laughs> things like that. <laughs> right. You know, getting relationships with guys like Adam Sandler because they're coming to games. And I remember Heath Ledger, I think, was at the game where I scored 52 against the Ooh. Heat. It was just a performance. Jay-Z's yes, always sir. there. I'm beyond it. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable.
1: Look, you for the guest. this is about you. But of course, I'm going to turn this to me me a little bit. And and I'm a movie buff, so I've, I've seen a lot of mo- great movies. I've seen a lot of bad movies, okay? Now, <laughs> without question, you are Jay Crossover. But I want to tell you about a bad movie I saw way back in the day. And the bad okay. movie I went to see was called Shakes the Clown. And the reason it's a bad movie, it wasn't just that he was an alcoholic and there was murder. I mean, it was. it's a clown. You're supposed to be happy around clowns, right? So right. I was at one, eight years later, I'm at... I'm at one of your games okay. and you are just putting buckets on them. I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to say what team it was, but okay. here's the deal. An opposing fan is there with his opposing gear on and everything. Okay. And he's got a seven, seven, six year old with him. So he's supposed to be rooting against you and you're out there shaking and bacon and scoring. And the little boy just goes, daddy, he did it again. He did it again. <laughs> and there was so much joy. And for me, I'm like, okay, this is who shakes the clown is. He's got shakes, but he's making folks happy, happy man. Right. And, and, and unless he's going against your team. And on that case that I witnessed the kid who he's supposed to be rooting for, he wasn't rooting again because you were out there doing what you wow. do. Have you understood? And look, Babyface face assassin is just, there's no creativity to calling that because that's what you were your whole career. But did you understand the joy you brought to kids, man? Not just, just folks like us.
0: <laughs> I really, I really didn't understand, to be honest with you. Like it's, it's amazing now, like with social media and everything, you mm-hmm. know, the highlights pop up. Right. Right. And then seeing people's response to it, whether mm-hmm. kids, adults, and it's like, wow, other entertainers. And, and mm-hmm. when you see that, kind of response it's like wow because in in the moment you're not thinking that you're just trying Mm -hmm. to help your team win you're just free you're just flowing you're just doing what comes to mind and and trying to win so when people entertain like that and people you know show that kind of respect or that kind of joy Mm -hmm. watching you perform and play it brings a smile to your face for sure because these are some of the same moves that they're getting excited about that i made up as a kid wow my own head right on the playground practicing so for the world or different people in the world to and kids especially to see that it's like wow it takes you back for sure and you're, you're humble by it and you're thankful.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's go to the way, way, way back machine, because in uh, almost another lifetime ago, I was a high school coach. I was a high school assistant coach. Okay. And I, I was that. an assistant coach in Los Angeles at a place called Manual Arts. Yep. And uh, one of my uh, one of our rivals, uh, Dorsey. Uh, was, at, yes, and yes. Uh, of course, you're a six guy. No question about that. But is there some history with you in Los Angeles? And were you briefly a, a Dorsey Don ever?
0: I was. I was there my freshman through uh, sophomore, junior seasons. And my dad actually went there. I don't know if you knew that part, but my dad Uh went there. He was all city guard. He went to Dorsey High School, and that's the reason why I went to Dorsey. And then he went to Oregon and played with Kevin Love's dad, Stanley. Wow. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, But my grandmother and my father lived in Los Angeles, so I was back and forth. I was there in fourth and fifth grade, came back to Mm -hmm. Seattle. Then I went back eighth through 11th grade. And then the beginning part of 11th grade, I left and came back to Seattle. So, yeah, Dorsey Don, for sure. And there was some of my best experiences uh just being around the team and stuff being a youngster going to high school
1: it's interesting because again to be in to to basically have two homes in a sense or to go back from one city to 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 the other uh what was a cultural difference or was it the fact that you had family in both places where you were always with family whether it was seattle or la
0: yeah a little bit of both to be honest Mm -hmm. with you it's culturally different because you know you go down the wrong street in la and and something can happen and yes sir seattle wasn't really like that it was different you know, and so I always felt more comfortable in Seattle because I had even more family in Seattle. Mm-hmm. In L.A., it was only my dad and my grandmother. In Seattle, I had Ooh. everybody. Gotcha. So I was always more comfortable in Seattle, but I learned so much being in L.A., mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and how to grow. And I remember my grandmother teaching me how to set a table and mm-hmm. going to church every single Sunday. Wow. And, wow. you know, I had I had chores. I had responsibility. I had to pick up the dog poop. I had to water the grass. I had to uh-huh. wash the dishes. Uh-huh. Like All those different things that kind of set me to be a, a young adult you know, even Mm -hmm. at a younger age, things Mm -hmm. I would need in life. And so in Seattle, it's my mom and sisters. And so I was able to kind of come and go as I please and kind of do, it wasn't much Mm -hmm. responsibility that way. So I needed both to Mm kind of balance me out. And I'm thankful for both.
1: Did you, from a, from a young age, were you always gifted offensively? I know you were always working on that, but were you always gifted? Were you, I mean, were you tall? Were you, you seemed slender. What was, tell, help me with that. You know, it's, it's funny, I was talking to
0: my first ever basketball coach. So I started basketball, football, baseball, all at eight years old, eight, nine year olds. And so I go out for the basketball team, local community center team. And he has us do two line layups. like all right, two line layups. And, you know, the kids are doing layups. We're eight years old. We're doing layups. My first layup in that line was after we did the layup was I went behind my back, did a cradle backwards jelly finger roll, and went and the kids are looking at me like, hold oh, no, on, what? Like, and I'm eight years old, right? And so my coach at the time knew I was something different. I was taller than everybody else. He, so he played mm-hmm. me at center on defense, but I Ooh. played point guard on offense. And so I was always, I've always had a ball with me, no matter where I went, you know, in Seattle rains a lot. So uh, for me i was still outside practicing in the rain i was doing it yesterday as a matter of fact just taking back to my childhood but wow. yeah dribbling in the rain and and I always had a ball with me if i go on a flight the basketball is my one carry on i go to sleep the basketball is my pillow right next to me so mm-hmm. it's became an extension of me and i try to find different ways to to be effective for my mind just to kind of mm-hmm. be free and, and mm-hmm. be imaginative and and I, I think it's worked out for me
1: so many Seattle guys have looked up to you. You've always shared love with them, regardless of what team they were on or, or how you guys battled on the court. Who, who, who were some of the Seattle guys you looked up to when you were a youngster there, Jamal? Oh, Jason Terry,
0: okay. uh, because he was one of the ones from my generation that went big time D1. And that wasn't really happening at the time. So him going to you know, Arizona was like going to the NBA at the time because you just wow. didn't hear about guys from your area going big time one Obviously, mm-hmm. Doug Christie, he's had the the profound impact on me. Uh, he showed mm-hmm. me what it was like to be a pro. He showed me what it was like, uh, how to work, how to carry yourself. He, he gave me all the tools I would need in the future. And he, I owe him immensely for that. And just giving back and caring about a kid in high school, you know, that that right there sparked the idea for me to do the same things I've done for kids. Um, Gary Payton, you know, him and Sean were here in Seattle, and I got a chance to know those guys and uh, they took me under their wing as well. You know, and I was able to go in the facility and work out with those guys, and and just learn from them. You know, mm-hmm. be a fly on the wall. I would say those were the main people I kind of looked up mm-hmm. to growing up mm-hmm. for sure.
1: I've been uh, uh, very blessed to, to 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 work at the level that I've worked in and talk to the people yeah. I've talked to, but among. Among some of the greatest stories I've, I've ever heard, and and I, I think of Hall of Fame point guards like uh, uh, Jason Kidd, and yeah. and Jason, like a lot of folks in Oakland, played for Gary's dad, Gary Payton's mm-hmm. dad, on the travel thing. But mm-hmm. uh, Jason made the mistake of uh, of talking shit to Gary uh, early in the career, and uh, you know uh, Gary, you know, to have Jason tell the story, Gary talked about him like uh, you know he was from another planet. And uh, you, you you ever make that mistake?
0: Never in true Gary fashion, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you a funny story. I don't think I ever told this story along the lines of that. Mm-hmm. So one of my best friends when I got to high school was Gary's nephew, you know, and I, this before me and Gary, had actually strung a relationship up. Mm-hmm. And so myself, uh, my two best friends, Dave Hudson, and Will Conroy, we're at the, the South Center mall. It's like the big mall out here. Right. It'd be uh-huh. like, uh, what's the mall well, in Atlanta? Linux, Linux? Like, <laughs> Linux. Right. So we're uh-huh. at, we're at the mall. Uh-huh. We're in the food court and we're, Gary, we see Gary and, you know, his friends. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, my, one of my best friends who's Gary's nephew walks up to him, kind of talking trash to him uh-huh. as he would. And Gary go down the line. He's like talking to his nephew. I've already outshot you. And he goes, my other best friend, you I already played you. You're no good. And then he pointed to me. I was last. He said, uh-huh. you, you come see me because I've been hearing about you doing all this Ooh. and you're doing that in high school. But you come see me, and we'll play one-on-one. And if I beat you, you got to walk around in your neighborhood with nothing on. I'm going to drive around in one of my trucks just watch me <laughs> laughing at you. And if, and if you beat me, I give you a million dollars. And I'm Oh and now, you, you got to remember, this is Gary, but this is the glove Gary Payton. Right, for. right. Seven, right? So, right. the whole mall congregates to this conversation. And you know, Gary, the more people, the louder he gets. So Absolutely. I'm not, quiet. I'm not backing down, but I'm not like going at him. I'm like, oh, well, I'll play. I'm saying a little stuff like that. Well, I'm not I'm scared. of saying a little stuff like that. Uh-huh. And then Gary says his peace, walks off. Everybody walks off with him. And I'm like, man, what just happened? <laughs> right? It's one of those moments. It was a moment I'll never forget. So I didn't technically talk trash to him. Uh-huh. But I got, I got caught in the Raptor right there.
1: Oh my goodness. Um when I worked with him for a year at NBA TV, man, it was uh you know, first of all the the TV Gary was tremendous, but the TV Gary really is just Gary, right? I mean there's there's no difference between between him and and that. So um uh you know, I start my career in Salt Lake City and and so that made me a fan of of Stockton and Malone and and, and a, a fan of the Mailman, but uh uh, those Seattle-Utah teams used to have some real tough yeah. battles and, and and Rain Man and, and, and Carl used to go at it. So I asked Gary about that once and I'm going, you know, um, why did, you know, why did Sean seem so amped up, man? It, oh, <laughs> man. You know, I used to gas <laughs> him up, man. I told him he was, yeah. Carl was talking about his mama. I was like, Carl wasn't doing it. He's, Oh, shit. No, he wasn't. But I had to gas my man up, man. I had it right. I'm like, so I guess that's just a, is that that's part of the G. point guard stuff
0: to get your guys going? That's just G. And you know what? Gary raised me. He he became a big brother uh-huh. after that. And he looked out for me. During mm-hmm. the draft process, I went and stayed with him. And he worked me out. And he was just unbelievable. We used to come to my high school games and, and watch and give me advice. And he, he's he's he been an unbelievable big brother. And I'm so thankful mm-hmm. for that relationship. Him and Doug, I would say, right. the two biggest influences on me once I got to high school to show me that I could make it and they both you know treated me like a little brother.
1: You talk about that Atlanta Atlanta squad that you joined being a, a veteran yeah. squad, but you're a 10-year vet yourself as you come in or entering your 10th year. But also uh, Jeff Teague is, is a, a, a rookie. rookie yeah. What 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 do you what are the things you go about to make sure you fit in, even though your game automatically fits in to me. You know? Yeah for me I just uh I try I, I play different styles
0: with different people. Right. So I knew when I was out there with Joe and Josh and those guys, they were going to have the ball more, you know? Mm -hmm. So for me, that's when I was in more of my catch and shoot game or playing Mm -hmm. the closeouts or, you know, finding different ways to still be effective, but kind of fit in with them. When I was out there in my unit with myself and Jeff and Zaza, I could be Mm -hmm. more aggressive. I could have the ball more. I could do pick and roll Mm -hmm. more, but both were needed. It was just two different totally styles of, of play. So for me, I just wanted to, uh stay within myself whatever the that that lane called for that so if i was out there with jeff and Zaza on those guys and i wasn't aggressive playmaking mm-hmm. then i was putting everybody at a disadvantage so i knew to be more aggressive there but i knew when i was with joe and those guys let them do the the heavy lifting and i play off of those guys you know i didn't get out there trying to you know mm-hmm. do my show when, right. when those guys were out there so i just stayed within myself and kind of learned to pick my spots and and things worked out for us
1: what was it? What was your beyond beyond being on that team and, and yeah. going to the playoffs for the first time? What what were your most positive experiences about playing in Atlanta or living in Atlanta for you?
0: I love the fans, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Like, I love the fans. I love the it's a vibrant city. We all know yes, that. Sir. But it, it was obviously we didn't get the like the biggest crowds, but the mm-hmm. crowds that came were so into it. Yes, sir. Um, I love seeing our people at the games. I love seeing mm-hmm. our people with regular jobs I like I'm being in Seattle or, or LA, I didn't really see mm-hmm. our people kind of having the, the jobs that they had out there. And it was just mm-hmm. really, really cool to see and experience and just the the genuine love that I received being there was really cool. I remember um, one time Gucci man came to the game and mm-hmm. and I was like, man, that's Gucci. And he was pointing at me smiling
1: like yeah I, like, I was like whoa. You know what I mean? So just
0: right. different little things like that was mm-hmm. was really,
1: really cool. You know, um I, I also this, again, this is our second episode here. So, uh, again, we appreciate you being on here with us so much, Jamal. Um, but last week, be here. I uh, I named my 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 10 favorite Hawks of all time. And, again, as I told folks okay. last week, um, they weren't necessarily the best players, but they're the 10 most effective to but me. You so yeah. you are part of that, but another guy that was one of your oh, teammates man. in my 10, uh, uh, Zaza Pachulia and stuff. So uh, yeah. what, what kind of teammate was, was Zaza for, for, for you?
0: Somebody you want to go to war with. Somebody that's loyal. Uh, somebody who would do whatever the team needs. Mm-hmm. Was never scared. Was fearless scared. in the big moments. Uh, I had such an unbelievable chemistry with Zaza. It's funny because now we're teammates mm-hmm. in, in business. Uh, we mm-hmm. have to shoot 360 going and you know across the country. We actually just opened in Atlanta, and Trey Young is a part of that group. But oh, yeah, really? Zaza is is unbelievable. He's he's a friend for life, and it's somebody who I always enjoy playing with and. Still had a connection with even after we stopped playing together. Tell me more about the business here. Yeah, so Shoot Three Hundred and Sixty is where technology kind of meets basketball. And mm-hmm. to give you an example, it's like uh, if a kid went to a gym, right, and they have mm-hmm. normal trainers and things like that, and and they get their workout in. The thing about Shoot Three Hundred and Sixty is when you come in the gym, it's technology based. So you're looking at a screen and you're following what the the gentleman or, or woman is doing on the screen, ball handling. Mm-hmm. uh, tips on passing, like for a passing exercise, for example, you're trying to hit a bug on screen. So the kids are getting better, but they're having fun doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's almost mm-hmm. like they are playing a video game, but they're mm-hmm. getting better. So they're trying to hit the bugs. Then they have a 30 minute training session where they do a shooting routine and they can be a kid in Atlanta. Since there's one there, they could be a kid in Atlanta having a shooting competition with a kid in Seattle. Oh, wow. As long as they're both shoot 360 60 members. Right. And so uh-huh. it's, it's where technology meets basketball. it gives you uh, immediate feedback with mm-hmm. uh, all your analytic stuff, the arc on your shot, the depth on your shot, your left to right. It gives you all that instant feedback and it helps you become a better player. So I'm excited about it.
1: What's it like the very first time you score 50 points in an NBA game? Oh, we were in we were I was playing
0: for Chicago. We were in Toronto.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I remember I had 46 going into the overtime. And uh, who was it? Antonio Davis looked up. And he said, man, you got 46. <laughs> Yeah. I was like, wow. But it, the backstory behind that, I don't know if you know Roman Madrowski. Mm-hmm. I think he's work, doing some work for ESPN. He's working mm-hmm. with Chicago Sun-Times at the time. Mm-hmm. And it was his last game on the beat Wow! that day. And he said, it's my last game on the beat. Man, why don't you go out and score 50? And I turned serious and I said, I'll do it. Oh and my God. I had 50 that, that same day. So I'm going to send you that. That clip, because Casey Definitely. Johnson wrote about his favorite Bulls moments, and that was one of his moments. So I'm going to send you that clip so you can oh, see it. Make,
1: make sure you do that. Then let me also yeah. ask you, as you're towards the end of your career, I didn't say it's over, towards the end, and you're on Phoenix, and they have a prolific scorer in, in Devin Booker, and he's a new yeah. generation guy, and everything that's everything. You score 50 points in a game again, man.
0: <laughs> and did it off the bench. <laughs> That one to me was the most meaningful 50 to me personally, because as you said, as you get further in your career and closer to the end, people try to write you off or you can't do this, you can't do that. And it's like, no, I can still go. It's just the situation asked me to do something different. So that year I actually averaged more assists than I had the last decade per 36 minutes, which was pretty cool. And so I was more proud about that and, and watching others growth than watching those young guys get better and helping them. And then me personally, come off the bench all these years, I didn't think there was enough time in a game. I didn't think a guy mm-hmm. would play enough to score mm-hmm. 50 off the bench. So mm-hmm. being able to be the first player in history to score 50 or four different teams, the highest points I ever scored off the bench, mm-hmm. um, and then the oldest player to ever score 50. Like all the things in one, right? So it was it was mm-hmm. really, really cool, and I was thankful and still so thankful for that. So that's probably the most impressive 50 to me.
1: I've got to ask you to do one other thing, and again, it's—I know it's easy for you. And uh, the f- very first time you did it, the thing that blew me away is you—you you did it at halftime of a national televised game when Lisa Salters asked you, and—and I think I got a pretty good memory. But you know, once I once I reached age 30 a long time ago. I realized I have to write everything down. So right. somebody comes up to me and say, hey, man, were you at Kroger last week? I, I'm not I so sure. So, right? <laughs> so you've played 20 years. You can recite, you can tell me every head coach that you played for without yeah. pencil or paper, all of them. Yeah. Okay, well, you know, I got a cheat sheet, so uh, uh, give, me to-
0: okay.
1: give me all Okay. 20. Be, if you
0: count interns, maybe a little more, but let's see. <laughs> okay. All right. We had Tim Floyd. <laughs> yes. Book all right. Uh-huh. Bill Berry. You good? I'm good. All right. Pete Myers. <laughs> Air Pete. yeah, hey, there you go. Scott Skiles. hmm uh-huh. Lenny Wilkins. Wow. Herb Williams.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Herb.
0: Uh Larry Brown. Yes. Isaiah Thomas.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Mike Dantoni.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
0: Right? Yes. Uh, then from there I went to go Don Nelson. Yes. Then we had Mike Whitson. Yes. Larry Drew. Yes, he did. Nate McMillan.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Caleb Canales. Wow. Uh, right? Yes. Okay, okay. Then we got uh Vinny Del Negro.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Doc Rivers.
1: Uh-huh. Tom Thibodeau? Yes, sir.
0: Igor? Igor. four okay. game. Yes, sir.
1: Come on. Jock Vaughn. And 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 for, for one game, Jock Vaughn. I said Jock Vaughn. That's 20. That you and and you got along with all your coaches. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, respect absolutely. for all your co- You have respect for the interims.
0: Yeah, I, I learned from all my coaches, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Like, mm-hmm. I, because all the coaches see things a little bit differently, right? And some mm-hmm. see the same, but you see um, different philosophies or, mm-hmm. and, you know, and a lot of it comes on how they were brought up and how they were coached, mm-hmm. you know. So mm-hmm. I had different philosophies and I, and I was almost a cheat sheet because I was able to pick a little something from everybody.
1: Mm-hmm. Man, um, I can't thank you enough for coming on here and, and, and spending this time with this man. And, and again, your work speaks for itself. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you don't need me to gas you up, but if if a call comes for you to join a team right now, I know you're ready. But also everything that your your, your grandparents and, and that you learned growing up, you're a reflection of all that. So that's why the equipment managers on every team you're with, the security guys, the Atlanta police, Officer Harris in the hallway, all those people, yeah. <laughs> everybody has nothing but positive things to say about their experience. Experiences with you. And that just isn't the case for uh everybody that's in your shoes. So, Jamal, thank you very much, man. Much success. Stay healthy, man. And, and again, thanks for joining us on this edition of A Toast to the A Town.
0: Very honored to be here. And tell those people I said hello, and I'll see them when I see them. Thank you all, so much.
1: All right. Thank you very much, man. And all again, right. uh Jamal Crawford joined us there. And and I don't know what else I can add uh to that, really. It's just um if if I'm lucky, if I'm fortunate, um all of the guys That are living that are part of my 10 favorite atlanta hawks of all time hopefully we can get them on there there's one guy in particular i know is extremely quiet doesn't do a whole lot of talking but uh that still didn't keep him off the list and maybe we can get him on there too but again uh jamal crawford a sixth man of the year three times and uh, again 20 years in the nba and still uh, waiting for a call if something happens this season he love to come out, make some buckets, and mentor some guys and get everything else. And that's going to wrap up this edition of A Toast for the A-Town. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. And uh, I will see you soon right here. So uh, be sure to hit that subscribe button presented by the Basketball Podcast Network.